Yoga in all its forms has been a support for me in my life through all the highs and lows. It's opened my mind and my heart in ways I never knew were possible. It has been a teacher, a taskmaster, and a friend. This podcast is an offering. I wish to share the teachings of yoga with you as a tool to help navigate life. Namaste and welcome. Welcome. I'm so happy you're here. So I wanted to um, share a term with you, and that term is ambiguous loss. So if you are not familiar with ambiguous loss, we'll give you a little, I'm going to give you a little history of the origination of that term. Pauline Boss is a family therapist. Uh, She was uh, a graduate student of psychology back in the, I guess, 60s. And she started uh, doing her work on uh, mostly uh, psychology of families. And back at that time, her research led her to a term, normal American family. That was literally a psychological term the normal American family, and that comprised of the man was the provider and the woman was the emotional smoother of waters. So psychologically, um, in the psychological field, the definition of the normal American family was the man went out to work, the husband went out to work, the father went out to work, and the woman was not only uh, took care of the children and the house, right, the homemaker, um, but she also was responsible to take care to smooth the emotional waters of of the family. And this role of homemaker, historically, was one that was um, isolating. There was a real isolation to this. So the model was coined the normal American family. Dad went out to work and he was the provider and mom stayed home with the kids. But she was the the caretaker, not only of dinner and the laundry and the like, but also the family's emotions. So now she's in this role of isolation and he's in this role that was away from the house, right? So the father doesn't really get to know their kids and the mother's they, they have this sense of um, maybe not feeling completely fulfilled, generally speaking, right? Now, we come along with um, the book, The Feminine Mystique, and that was written by Betty Friedan. And this is really the first time that it was exposed, you know, this, um, this situation, this setup, and this isolation of the woman because her role was not to be out in the world uh, to the same degree that the husbands were. Um, That book, Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, actually labeled the issues and which was the general malaise of women and all that we said, and also caused a revolution. Now, within this revolution, you now go back to 
the different ways in which ambiguous loss, the frame coined by Pauline Boss, is applied. Father absence is considered like a type two. This is according to Pauline Boss. It's a type two ambiguous loss where someone is here, but they're not here. Right? So men were given this role of being absent, right? Societally, they were not actually invited to inhabit the space or the role of the emotional smoother of waters. This was even to the extent of like not being able, not being invited to have an emotional connection to their wives, right? So they were, and of course, this is generally speaking. So I might hear from people who say, you know, my dad, I was raised in the 50s and 60s, and my dad was a big mush, you know, when he was, yes, absolutely. I agree. I'm sure that's the case. But predominantly speaking, it was men were not invited to engage or connect emotionally with the wife and the kids. Now, let's look at this in history for a second, getting stepping off of the ambiguous loss, but we'll get back to it because it's all connected. Much like yoga, right? Yoga, unite, yuj, connect. When it started basically when soldiers came back from World War One. <clears throat> when soldiers came back from World War One, they were just exhibiting these mental disturbances, depression, um, and so forth. In psychology, pre-World War One, I, I mean, actually, we're, we're talking ancient Egypt. Depression and mental disturbances were only seen in women. So follow me here. We're in ancient Egypt, and women are exhibiting anxiety, um, convulsions, things like this. And they were given the diagnosis of hysteria. And their hysteria was believed to be due to a wandering uterus. Yes, a wandering uterus. We even have, um, I don't know what you would call it, but Hippocrates believed that hysterical symptoms such as anxiety, convulsions, and, and the like, were due to sexual inactivity. So we have the definition of these women who are just not happy. They are convulsing and depressed. And we tell them, well, okay, the diagnosis is your uterus is wandering all over the place. You've got, you've got, I just, that I can't even, but hello women. Okay. It's, it's, it, it, it obviously goes back to Eve and the apple and all the things, but you know, here we are in ancient Egypt being told our mental disturbances are because of our uterus. Okay. Don't get too sidetracked. Okay. And now we've got Hippocrates saying this thing, this, this hysteria, that's because there's not enough sexual activity. So now just in your own imaginations, figure out how they decided to cure that one. Okay. Cause we're not going there on this podcast. 
but yeah, it's what you think. Okay. So now as time progresses, uh, cultures are going to argue. They're, they're definitely going to argue about, you know, whether, oh, they're going to argue about whether like the prescription would be more sex or less sex, <laughs> but they are still, um, looking at these ailments again, the malaise, the anxiety, the depression, and et cetera, as a dysfunction of the female reproduction, reproductive organs. And this uh, notion, this medical diagnosis is going to hang around for a very long time, long time. And I'll even say, you know, I can, I can remember this might be a TMI, but I can remember being a kid and my parents would fight a lot. And one of the things in real heated temper fights, my father would be like, get your hormones checked. I didn't know what that meant as an eight or nine year old, but this is where that stems from. Like if there's a major disturbance, you know, so <clears throat> the mom is not keeping the emotional waters smooth. She better get her hormones checked. Or maybe her uterus wandered up to her left nostril. I don't know where the uterus wanders. Okay, let's move on, <clears throat> lest I get uh, too distracted. So, okay, so now they're going to continue to, uh, you know, never find really a treatment for hysteria, right? Um, they're going to just fail at this, right? Because they, anyway, so now fast forward and we've got the soldiers returning from World War I. Freud and some other guys had basically entered into the study of trauma based on hysteria, but it was always a female problem. So hysteria, trauma, all the things were female. Now you got these guys coming back from World War I and they're exhibiting symptoms of hysteria. They've been traumatized. This, this was where we got the term shell-shocked because these loud noises and everything. And to be shell-shocked, if you exhibited signs of being shell-shocked, you were weak. You were considered weak as a man. If you exhibited PTSD, any of these things, which they are, the confusion came with these men are having these emotional outbursts and muteness, amnesia. But wait a minute, how could this be? It doesn't work. They don't have a uterus. So how could they be exhibiting the same hysterical symptoms as women have since forever? These dudes don't have a uterus. Okay, so here's what happens. And I'd love to go into trauma and things like that um, in another episode and, and how it affects our energy body and the chakras, and we will. But now what happens is, men begin to get the message very loud and clear that they will be shamed if they exhibited tendencies like that of a woman. They began to build kind of like an armor around their emotional selves because if they acted hysterical and had, and were exhibiting emotions like trauma or PTSD or what the hell they see in war, they would be considered weak and then they would really be outcasted. So, so what they do is they kind of get the message. Okay. Uh, emotional, you know, 
anger is fine for a man, not for a woman. Remember that. But emotional, you know, I can't be upset by anything. I can't seem nervous and anxious. I can't cry. I got to shut that down. Otherwise, I will be uh, not accepted in society. So they get their emotional armor around themselves. So now you have Father Knows Best or you've got the Donna Reed show, if you remember these things. Mother is smoothing the emotional waters and dad barely knows the names of the kids. Okay. So now we're back to this term of ambiguous loss and you've got this pioneer, Pauline Boss, is uh, starting these, uh, doing these family therapy groups. And the fathers would be in family therapy you know, saying like, this is mom's domain. Like, this is my wife's domain. What am I doing talking about how well little Johnny is feeling? Like, this is not my thing. And the kids would say things like, dad's dad's mind is in his briefcase or dad's mind is in his office. And this, of course, is very stressful for these intact families, right? These families are intact, but this is the thing. Dad is physically present when he comes home from work at night, but he's psychologically absent. He's emotionally unavailable. That is a category of ambiguous loss. Now, when we go into what is known as type one uh, ambiguous loss, this is going to be um, physical, two kinds really, physical presence. So the person is physically present, but they're mentally absent. So think of people that are stricken with dementia or Alzheimer's. Then you have the flip side, which is where the person is physically gone, but there's a very strong mental presence. This is going to show up, you know, this can show up in death, right? But death has rituals around it in our culture and in all cultures that allow us to go through the stages to process it and embody it. But the kind of ambiguous loss where there's a physical loss, but a mental presence would be more like a soldier missing an action or a, a missing child um, be, be it kidnapped or run away. So a dog that runs away and you, you, you don't get that dog back. That dog never comes back. It's like, it's unresolved loss. And this actually came to light, um, with the MIAs in, uh, Vietnam war. So around the seventies in the seventies, this is really when the ambiguous loss term is coined for this idea of somebody being physically gone, but mentally present. And when we think actually of like our news today, there's so much news. We are inundated with news stories all the time. You know, during um, a lot of regulations were changed during the Bush Cheney administration to allow for news to just be a shit show where anybody could get away basically for the most part with saying anything. And it just became one of the hardest to really process reality shows. You know, it's like, 
this is the news. So it's really happening. But anyway, why, why I bring that up is because our news is so full of these unanswerable facts and situations, these mysteries, like we would hear this news story, but we don't ever get the resolution. It's just like this, it's like a, a shock factor, right? And that jars us in our nervous system conscious, subconsciously. Like we think that we are just a passersby with this news story, uh, but actually we're taking it in because we take everything in. We metabolize and assimilate all the information. That's what our brain is doing and our nervous system is doing all the time. So now ambiguous loss can become a complicated loss, which can cause a complicated grief. What this is, is it's like, it's like an illogical, chaotic, painful situation that people go through, like these missing loved ones or the Alzheimer's or the missing child. This creates a chronic long-term grief. Now, this is to not to imply that all grief is not long-term. It is. But the acute chronic long-term grief is, this, uh, is the nature of ambiguous loss. And when we look at ambiguous loss, let's say from the realm of uh, a, a child that we lose, the, it can it will be pricked at you in different incremental times in your life, like when that child would have been graduating school or graduating college or getting married, different milestones that would have happened, but they're not happening. So the rituals that we have around loss and death are really, really important to help us assimilate the loss into and integrate it into our being so that we can carry it forward with us as opposed to being hobbled or paralyzed by it. This is not the case in ambiguous loss. Now, shifting to relationships, I'll speak of uh, the now infamous, but you probably didn't hear too much of her name pre-COVID, Esther Perel. So Esther Perel is a, um, a psych psychologist and she studies relationships and um, she's all over the place the last couple of years and she's a brilliant woman, much like Pauline Boss. So she speaks of ambiguous loss in, in the context of I don't know if this will make sense, but like how loneliness is a crisis of modernity. And that's not a phrase I made up. I heard it somewhere, but loneliness as a crisis of modernity. So in other words, if I think I understand what that means is modern technology and the way we live our lives, right? That's, that's moving forward and, and, you know, technology has all these great advances just like, you know, I have a laptop and a microphone and I can make a podcast, like, but there is a crisis that comes with what the modern technology affords us. So for instance, you can have like a fundamental acknowledgement, like, a, like an existential loneliness, right? That's seeking yourself and reflection and yoga right? And figuring out the machinations of the mind and the emotion body and all of this. But what we think of really is the kind of loneliness that's different than that. It's the loneliness 
that makes us feel like we're not good enough or it's the loneliness that makes us feel like in a relationship we're disposable or we're dispensable. That feeling like you could be alone in a crowded room or alone in a, in a relationship, a long-term relationship, right? So ambiguous loss in a relationship literally can look like, and this is an example that Esther Perel uses, where you're lying in bed with someone, but you're scrolling on your phone, looking through Instagram reels, or someone literally could have like a whole nother life happening on their phone. And there's just, there's nothing lonelier than that. So here you are physically present, but emotionally absent, psychologically absent. She says, Esther Perel posed a question to a group. She said years ago where she said to the people, um, how many people in the audience that she was in, the last thing you stroked before you went to bed last night was your phone even though you were lying next to someone you love and how many people in this audience she asked the first thing you touched when you woke up this morning was your phone so ambiguous loss in relationship comes from a lack of acknowledging being mindful that we are either feeling a loss of emotional connection to the person that we love. You know, ambiguous loss can also feel like you have friendships, but you're not cultivating them, like you're not caring for them. But here you are in a relationship, and if you feel that this person that you're with they're there, but they're not there. What is that bringing up for you? Um, you know, there's nothing lonelier than the loneliness you feel when you're next to someone that you once didn't feel lonely around, if that makes sense. And this quote from Esther Perel, the quality of our relationships determine the quality of our lives. This is how eros and desire and passion and you know the more connected and present we are in our relationships the more we learn about ourselves the more we learn about our inner desires our passions what fuels us what makes us feel alive so this ambiguous loss this is what i'm going to posit here leave with you Consider your most intimate relationships. You know, I saw a picture on social media that someone I know posted recently and uh, they were, they didn't post it for this reason, but this is what I saw. They were at a, uh, a winery and uh, they took a picture of the people in the winery. And when I looked at the picture, I saw everybody was uh with someone else but um in every coupling whether it was two women or two men or man and a woman one of them was on the phone and one of them was looking lost and there was one couple that that stuck out explicitly for me in the picture 
that's ambiguous loss. You're sitting there, you went to a winery to have a glass of wine with somebody and to catch up and that person is on their phone and the other person is just staring into the wilderness, <laughs> the wilderness being all the wine bottles. So look at your quality of your relationships, how you're showing up and feeling present, feeling psychologically present, feeling emotionally present in the physical space that you're inhabiting. So, so just a little chit chat on ambiguous loss, a little tap in there to the uh, history of trauma and hysteria. Wow, <laughs> wandering uterus. Um, that should stick with you for a little while. So thank you for listening. Um, I hope you will listen to this, but also apply some of these thoughts and ideas to your own life and see where these things may be present and where you could possibly make some improvements, you know, start to um, cultivate your relationships like the living organisms that they are. Thank you so much for listening. Hands at the Heart Center. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be healthy and strong. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings live with ease. Namaste.